please pray with me. Father, this word you have for us today is a hard word, and I pray that you would um, help us. Um, please be with us by your spirit to enlighten us, to show us the truth, and to help us to be your obedient children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so please grab a Bible, and we're going to dive straight into studying Jonah chapter 4. So it's page 775 in the Pew Bibles. The whole book of Jonah is uh, just on two pages, so it's easy to miss. Page 775. If you don't have a Bible, there's a whole lot of them on the, the shelf at the back. So for the past um, three Sundays, we've been going through the book of Jonah here at Incarnation, um, and we've heard his story unfold. And now, by the time as we reach uh, chapter four, I think we're really starting to wonder what this book is really about. Um, because a bit like the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, the story of Jonah just goes really weird at the end. Um, so it begins like it's going to be a book of prophecy, but then it quickly takes a sharp U-turn and instead starts telling a story of a disobedient prophet. And as we read through Jonah's story, we care really about two things, right? We really care what's going to happen to Jonah after he disobeyed God and what's going to happen to Nineveh. Those are the two crisis points of the story, and we need resolution for both of those things um, because both Jonah and Nineveh have come into conflict with God, and those conflicts need to be resolved. So then as we read through, we get to the end of chapter 2, and we get the answer to the story of Jonah himself. <clears throat> God rescues Jonah from the big fish and restores him. Jonah gets a second chance. So Jonah's story is resolved then. <clears throat> And then we get the second part of our resolution at the end of chapter 3, because Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he teaches them about um, the coming judgment, and they repent, and they turn to God, and they're rescued. It's this great high point in the story. The king and the whole city repents, and at the end of uh, chapter 3, in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, by the end of chapter 3 of Jonah, we have a happy ending to satisfy any Disney fan. Jonah is rescued, and God didn't give up on him. And the people of Nineveh repented, and God spared them. Cue the music and roll the credits, right? But then chapter 4 comes along and just kicks sand in your face. It messes everything up. It raises a bunch of troubling questions, and it even ends on a question. How unresolved is that? <laughs> and we might ask, why is this chapter even here? It just spoils the story. <laughs> Jonah has just done a mighty thing for God. He was rescued from the fish. He came to his senses and cried out to God for mercy. And he was at least figuratively, if not literally, raised from the dead. And not just raised, but restored. He was recommissioned to be God's prophet to Nineveh. He went through a sort of baptism and came out a new man. So his story restarted. And the second time he obeyed God and went to Nineveh, and the city listened to him. And it turned from evil and came home to God because of Jonah. 120,000 people were saved in one day. Because of him, 
Who on earth can say that? It was because of his ministry. Which of us doesn't long for a ministry like that? <laughs> a ministry that matters, that has that kind of effect. Saves thousands of people. Jonah was a superstar. But when we find him at the beginning of chapter 4, we read this. But all this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Page number 775. Jonah was angry. In fact, it says a couple of times in chapter 4 that Jonah says of himself, I am angry enough to die. And so we're left wondering why. What made Jonah so angry? Well, that's been a fascinating question for me as I've thought about it this week. And the answer I've come to is this, that Jonah was angry directly at God. And specifically, he was angry at the compassion of God. Because here's what Jonah says for himself when he speaks to God. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's really ticked Jonah off. So Jonah was angry because God is gracious and merciful, which sounds very counterintuitive. So in verse 2, Jonah actually quotes from God's own statement about himself. God said those words first uh, when he revealed his glory to Moses back in Exodus 33 and 34. And you might remember that event. It's pretty amazing because Moses prays to God, please show me your glory. Imagine that. <laughs> please show me your glory. And God told Moses that his presence and his glory was so pure and blazing that no one could see it and live. But God would show Moses as much of his glory as he possibly could. Moses got to see God's back. Just his back, not his face. Because if he saw his face, he'd die. But Moses got to see his back. So Moses went up the mountain and he hid in a rock. And God passed by. And Moses got to see God's back. And as God came past, he said this. He announced himself the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that sentence is one of the holiest and most precious sentences in the whole Bible. It's the sentence our Creator wanted us to hear as He announced who He was. It's God's own heart and character. And this sentence is repeated word for word six more times in the rest of the Old Testament. So it's in Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Joel 2, and here in Jonah chapter 4. And everywhere else that this sentence is repeated, it's repeated, they're words with utter glory. It's praising God for who he is. It's the heart of his character. But only here in Jonah 4 are these words of criticism. These are words of accusation as they come out of Jonah's mouth. So Jonah was angry at who God was. He was offended by God himself. He was offended 
by God's mercy on people, which sounds appalling. Um, but I think that Jonah's anger here is actually really helpful for us because Jonah discovered what I think we all discover sooner or later as we try and live our lives with God, that the compassion of God, although it's wonderful, can also be very hard to live with. So here's three things that Jonah discovered as he lived his life with God. First, the compassion of God offends our sense of justice. Second, the compassion of God offends our sense of privilege. And third, the compassion of God messes with our plans for our lives. All right, so first, the compassion of God offends our sense of justice. Now, usually, our first encounter with God's compassion is when he forgives us, right? So we, we learn that he's compassionate when he forgives us, and we're pretty happy about that. It's great that he's willing to forgive us, even for the very worst things that we've done. But honestly, if we're honest, most of us don't actually find it very hard to believe that God could forgive us, right? Because we're not all that bad. We weren't all that bad to begin with. There were a few misdemeanors here and there, but no serious evil. So, okay, he can forgive me. But what happens when God starts forgiving and showing compassion on serious evil? Because that's what Jonah had to face when he went to Nineveh. And as we've preached through the book of Jonah, we've heard a lot about Nineveh. But in case you missed it, then here's a recap. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which was at that time spreading like gangrene over the Middle East. And it was conquering surrounding countries, forcing people into slavery, stealing their property, and massacring any resistance with merciless brutality. The Assyrian people themselves practiced the worst kinds of pagan fertility cults, which meant that every single inhabitant of the city of Nineveh participated in idol worship, where women were routinely enslaved and subjected to constant physical abuse in the temples, and children were offered as sacrifices. Human wickedness really just doesn't get much worse than it was in Nineveh. We're talking about serious evil. And for Jonah, Israel, the country, was under constant threat of invasion from Assyria. So all this was very personal. Assyria was the ISIS on his doorstep, threatening everything he cared about. And it made Jonah angry. That's why Jonah fled to Tarshish, so Nineveh would be judged instead of forgiven. Jonah wanted to see the city destroyed. And he was still hoping that it would be destroyed even after he preached there. So that's why, in chapter 4, he's gone up on the hillside to watch. He's hoping to see a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of destruction of the city even after it repents. And so when nothing happens, Jonah gets angry. God's forgiveness of Nineveh offended Jonah's sense of justice. Because someone should have to pay for all that evil, all those lives ruined. Someone should pay. They shouldn't just get away with it. It's not just. Now, I found myself caught in a similar emotion only a couple of weeks ago 
And it wasn't even because of anything real that was happening in the news. It was because of a fictional novel. All right. So I was listening to John Grisham's novel called Rogue Lawyer uh, on audiobook. And if you don't know John Grisham, he, he was a practicing lawyer, and now he writes a lot of legal fiction. So his books are full of some really nasty, bad-egg characters. But Rogue Lawyer contains probably his most objectionable character of all. It's a guy called Arch Swanger. <coughs> Arch Swanger. You can tell by the name that he's a bad guy. So Swanger, he's a serial kidnapper. He abducts young women, and he abuses them. And when he's done with them, he sells them to a trafficking ring. Horrible. Um, and in the novel, Grisham goes into a lot of detail about the human cost of Swanger's behavior. So he goes into detail about those families that are torn apart by grief and the extent of the nightmare that his victims find, himself, find themselves in. And the story is about the police hunt to track this guy down. Now, of course, Grisham is writing fiction, right? But that doesn't mean that this sort of thing isn't really happening in our own country and even in our own city. And that was the thought that made me deeply angry, like Jonah. Angry at people who could cause such terrible suffering. And in the midst of that anger, I found that I had no compassion at all on the arch swangers of our world, on people who've sold themselves into pure evil and fill up the world with violent and despicable crimes. This doesn't reflect well on me, but just like our children shared, when you get angry, you just want to hurt them. In the midst of that anger, all I wanted was that those people would be dead, destroyed, smoked out, brought to justice, punished. I wanted no mercy, but some kind of reckoning, some kind of vengeance. And if, if any of you have come into contact personally with serious evil or even been the victims of abuse or injustice yourselves, I expect that you've felt this kind of anger. And if we have, then I think we can understand something about Jonah's anger. It makes sense to me that he should be angry when the Lord had mercy on Nineveh's serious evil, that Jonah should even take offense at God's own compassion. There's an anger that rises up in us that forgiveness isn't just. They shouldn't be able to just get away with it like that. Someone should pay. But God rebukes Jonah in verse 4 by asking him, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And that's almost exactly the question that God asked Cain, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 4, right before Cain killed Abel. So this kind of anger might be understandable, but it's not good. If we're angry at someone, what happens in us is that the anger crowds out any feelings of love and compassion that we might have for that person. The children said that this morning. I don't think that people are capable of being angry with someone and loving them at the same time. I just don't think we can do that. That's why James wrote, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the answer to God's question is no. We don't do at all well to be angry. 
even when that anger is maybe justified, even when it's directed against injustice, it doesn't do any good. The anger only does harm. We're better off leaving the justice to God. So Jonah quoted from Exodus, but he left out the end. He left out the part in Exodus that would have helped him the most with his anger. Because the end part says that God, yes, he's a God of steadfast love, relenting from disaster. But the end is, he will by no means clear the guilty. In the same sentence, God says that of himself. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. So God, unlike us, can uh, express a wrathful judgment on a person and love them at the same time. He can do what we aren't able to do. God never loses his compassion for anybody, but he will do what is right. God can show compassion and mercy on people without ever once losing his grip on justice. And so by no means will the tiniest evil ever go unpunished or unpaid. And we can trust this. Jonah could have been forgiven for not really understanding how this works, because it wasn't very clear at the time he was alive. But we know. We know how God planned to pay for all that forgiven sin that he took away from the Ninevites. We know the place where God's justice and his mercy meet because they meet at the cross of Jesus. Jesus died to bear the punishment for sin, even serious evil. So God was able to forgive the whole city of Nineveh because Jesus was going to pay for that. All those people and all their crimes, Jesus was going to pay it in full. So the justice of God was satisfied at the cross. The justice of God was satisfied when Jesus paid for it, and we need to be satisfied too with that. We've got to let our sense of outraged justice be satisfied there at the cross, that God sees it, that he knows it, that he has a plan for dealing with it, that every evil is dealt with in either of two places, that the person must bear their own judgment, or that Jesus bears it on their behalf on the cross. No evil slips through the net of that. So we can give up any sense of anger we have because we know that the God of heaven will make it right. And that is his job, not ours. And that is probably one of the most precious freedoms of the children of God. We are free to lay down that sense of anger at injustice. And because we can lay it down, then the love and the compassion is able to come back. We're free to forgive, and we're free to love. So we're free from any kind of slavery to hatred so that we can treat people with the love and compassion of God, even our worst enemies and even the arch swangers of the world. We can pray for them. We can have compassion on them. Okay, so that's the first reason the compassion of God is hard to live with, because it offends our sense of justice. Now, second, God's compassion offends our sense of privilege. And what I mean by this is our sense of privilege in our covenant with God. 
our contract with God, our arrangement with him, that he should be our God and we should be his people. Okay, we have this sense of covenant. So I want to think about it first from Jonah's perspective. Uh, Jonah was one of the children of Abraham. And so he was part of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And that was a covenant that said, you will be my people and I will be your God. It was a covenant that distinguished the people of Israel from all the other nations. That, and it said they were different. They were special. They had a special relationship with God. Israel's covenant with God meant that the people were expected to keep God's law and follow his directions for worship. So the covenant changed the way they lived their lives day to day. They had to work hard to live as God's people, and it took intentionality and effort. What about the other nations? They got to do as they pleased. They got to write their own laws and live their own way. And worse, Psalm 2 says, they conspired against God to ignore him and throw off his influence. So shouldn't the covenant people of God get better treatment than the other nations? Shouldn't the people who've made sacrifices to live God's way get some sort of reward, while the people who stand against God get some sort of punishment? Doesn't that make sense? If God treats the people outside the covenant with the same kind of mercy and compassion that he has for the people inside the covenant, then don't his people have to ask, does the covenant mean nothing? And this seems to have been hard for Jonah. It's still hard for us. So when Jesus came to earth, we hear him telling parables that pull on this sense of privilege. So like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So you remember that parable where some workers are hired at the beginning of the day and they work all day um, and in the hot sun and they labor. And uh, some workers are hired through the day until the ones who are hired at the 11th hour of the day and they only do a little bit of work. And at the end of the day, the master pays them all the same. That offends us, doesn't it? It offended the workers in the story. And the master had to ask them, are you envious because I am generous. And then again, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. He goes off and squanders the money, and then he comes home, and the father throws a party, and the older brother's mad about it. And we're sympathetic with that older brother, aren't we? It offends us, too, that the father should throw a big party for this reckless son who wasted his money. Jesus knows that we're going to find those parables offensive. And that's why he told them. Because if we find those stories annoying, then what they offend in us is our sense of privilege. It's our sense that we've worked hard for God, and God owes us. We have a covenant, and that covenant should mean payback. Well, I think that sense of privilege contributed to Jonah's anger over Nineveh and his wife. Because God shows Jonah a ton of mercy in the story, and Jonah completely ignores it. So first, obviously, there's a fish to save his life in chapter 1. And we read that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And then here again in chapter 4, there's a miraculous plant that grows up in one night. And we read that God appointed a plant to give Jonah shade. And although Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, 
he didn't give God any thanks for it at all. And when God took it away again, he had a temper tantrum. So Jonah seems to have forgotten in chapter 4 how much he himself has been a recipient of God's mercy. And it's when we forget how much we've been forgiven that we start to grow that sense of privilege. Like we have this relationship with God because we've worked hard for it. We deserve it, and other people don't. The antidote to an overdeveloped sense of privilege is to keep clear in our minds just how much we ourselves have been forgiven, how much mercy and grace we have received from the Lord. So Jesus tells another parable to turn this whole thing on its head, and it's the one we read this morning about the unmerciful servant. And when we read it, you heard that Jesus shows us how crazy it is for us to accept forgiveness from God for such a huge debt and then turn around and withhold it from other people for a much smaller debt. Our sense of privilege is a false one. We're saved only by God's grace and not by anything we've done. God owes us nothing. And we're every bit as dependent on his generosity as anyone in the world. So those are the first two reasons why God's compassion is hard to live with. But I think the third is probably the hardest of all. The compassion of God messes with our plans for our lives. God cares for the lost. He has an incurable compassion for his enemies and for everyone on earth. And he can't get over it. He can't leave them alone. He is going after the lost. And what that means for his people is that God is never going to leave us alone either. Jonah had no compassion for Nineveh whatever, but that didn't matter. Jonah had to go because of God's compassion for the city. Jonah had to go, whether he liked it or not. Whether it took a wind or a storm or a big fish or whatever it took, Jonah was going to Nineveh because of God's compassion. The last verse in the book of Jonah is a question. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. That's the end of the book. The book of Jonah is left unresolved, with Jonah's anger unappeased, with the conflict between Jonah and his prophet unreconciled, and with this question left unanswered, hanging in the air. And so the book of Jonah forces the reader to finish it. It forces us to provide the necessary resolution, either by siding with Jonah and criticizing the heart of God's own character, or by siding with God and saying that he was right to force Jonah to go to Nineveh. God puts his question directly to each one of us. Should I not pity the lost and send you after them? Now, let's be honest. God's call to go to the lost is hard. It's painful. It's really one of the hardest parts about following Jesus. 
<clears throat> we all have days of wishing that Jesus had never said, go and make disciples of all nations. Because most days we really don't want to. We don't in ourselves have nearly as much compassion for the lost as God does. Not even close. And if God gave us a choice in the matter, if he put it up to vote, then we'd probably opt for not going. Let's just leave the lost to deal, for, deal with themselves. Tarshish invariably looks a lot more attractive to us than Nineveh ever does. So from time to time, the Holy Spirit has nudged me specifically and told me, I need to have a conversation with this person. I need to talk to them. I need to reach out with, to them with the gospel. And I don't think that has ever happened at a convenient time. Not once. I don't think I've ever felt, oh, great. That's exactly what I want to do right now. Never. We all have a lot more Jonah in us than we'd care to admit. Sarah's mum, Marsha, tells a story about a time that she was on a plane and she was sitting next to a man that she'd never met before. And God clearly told her early on in the flight that she needed to talk to that man. And Marsha really didn't want to. So she waited and she kept silent until towards the end of the flight, the man spilled his cup of orange juice all over her. <laughs> and while they got it cleared up, they got talking and she ended up telling him about Jesus. And as she looks back on this incident, she pictures God up in heaven dangling a cup of orange juice over her <laughs> and saying, okay, sweetheart, we can do this dry or we can do it wet. <laughs> we might prefer to leave the lost alone and Jonah would definitely have preferred to leave Nineveh alone, but God will never, never be able to leave the lost alone. His compassion drives him into every corner of the earth to find every lost sheep. And because of that, he will never leave us alone either. We can all expect that the compassion of God will mess with our plans for our lives. And in Jonah 4, there's a huge disparity between how much God cares for Nineveh and how much Jonah cares for Nineveh. That's the whole point God was making with the plant and the worm. You care deeply about these trivial things. Should I not care about these great things? So we need to admit that the same is true for all of us, that we sit around caring desperately about trivial things all day while ignoring all kinds of great and important things all around us. And that's just real. And God shows through Jonah that he can work effectively through someone who really doesn't care. <laughs> But we'd still do well to pray and ask God to give us more of his compassion for people, especially for lost people. Pray to give us more of his heart, his loving missionary heart that never gives up. For some reason that I can't explain, God has chosen the likes of us to carry his gospel message into the world. Yes, that's right. People like you and me who don't love people very well and who don't care very much, not nearly as much as God cares. When Jonah was drowning in the ocean, God appointed a fish to swallow him. And when he was baking in the desert, God appointed a, a plant to shade him. And when Nineveh was dying, God appointed Jonah to preach salvation to them. And all of those solutions are strange choices when you think about it. But that is what God chose. 
that was how he wanted to solve the problem, and he made it happen. One of these days, the God of compassion is going to hear someone's cry, and he's going to be moved to help them, and his brilliant solution is going to be you. <laughs> so when that day comes, are you going to be ready to lay down whatever else you have going on that day? so that you can obey God and do what he wants, however little it makes sense to you. Because at the end of the day, your choice is going to be the same as Jonah's or the same as Marsha's. We can do this dry, <laughs> or we can do it wet. 